it is great to be with you. I've been down to Sussex twice in my life, and this is my third time, so this is great. Is God guilty of genocide? The short answer is no. And as long as you get that, the rest doesn't matter. But I'm going to give you the longer answer tonight. And if you want the longer, longer answer, then do buy the book. Um, because all I can do tonight is to highlight some of the main points in answering this question. We're going to have to do some serious thinking. It's, not, it's easy to give a superficial answer, but then that's no answer. And what I'm wanting us to do is to, is to really wrestle seriously with what the Bible says, taking the Bible seriously, and taking this question seriously. Okay, so that's what I want to do. Now, in 2016, the British Social Attitudes Survey revealed that over 49% of the population now designates themselves, designates themselves as nuns, that is, people with no religion. And that is a group which is increasingly growing in the West. Now, some of these will believe in no God, they're atheists. Others will not be quite sure of the, whether there is a God or what God they might believe in. But most of them will be quite certain of the God they don't believe in and the God they don't want to believe in, and that is the God of the Old Testament. Now, the popular view is that the God of the Old Testament is this ill-tempered tribal God, uh, the God of the Hebrews, and he is far removed from the universal God of love as we see him incarnated in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, on the face of it, it may seem they have a point and especially when you consider some of the commands that God gave in the prelude to the conquest of Canaan, such as this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many of the nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when the Lord God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favour to them. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. And it would appear that Joshua, at the very least, took those commands seriously. So we read in Joshua 6.21, They, Israel, utterly destroyed everything in the city of Jericho both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. Now, of course, in recent years, the new atheists have been adding fuel to the fire. So, uh, Professor Richard Dawkins writes, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a, misogy a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, I just wish he would say what he really thinks. <laughs> and just in case you haven't got the point, he goes on. The Bible story of Joshua's destruction of Jericho and the invasion of the Promised Land in general is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacres of the Kurds or the Marsh Arabs. 
Well, if genocide is defined as the deliberate killing of a large group of people, especially those of a nation or a particular ethnic group, then on the face of it, the answer to the question as to whether God is guilty of genocide, well, it seems a foregone conclusion. Of course. What other answer could there be without some kind of special pleading? However, tonight I want to hope to show you that the question is not so cut and dried as may first appear. You see, as with other matters the Bible confronts us with, such as heaven and hell, the answers we come to often turn on how we read the Bible, considering its text responsibly, and not just sort of picking out texts at random with paying no attention to their context. Now, I want to argue that passages like the one I've just referred to are to be taken literally whilst not dodging some of the moral issues raised, such as the killing of children. And we should avoid the temptation to domesticate the God who has revealed himself throughout the whole of Scripture, and supremely through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to take them literally. But the approach I'm going to be adopting um, is what can be called a literal typological interpretation, a literal typological interpretation, which simply means this, that the commands will be taken with a literal meaning in their immediate context. In other words, what God said, he meant. But their full significance is to be found in their pointing to and preparing the way for the coming of Christ, who will fulfill all the law and the prophets Matthew 5.17 And in the Jewish scriptures, the book of Joshua fell into the category of the prophets. So in some way, Jesus fulfills the conquest of Canaan, as we see it being carried out by Joshua. And I hope to show you how. Now, a fundamental principle in reading the Bible responsibly, not just taking out texts, is that we respect the whole narrative setting of which the commands and the ensuing conquering stories are a part. So these appear within a much broader narrative which relates God's revealed character, his relationship to his creation as ruler, the redemption of his people as their saviour, and his ultimate purposes for the world as rescuer and judge. That's the big picture. And to strip out the commands to conquer the land does violence to that overarching narrative. And so it distorts the nature of the commands, and that therefore makes them malleable to alternative, subjective, polemical interpretations along the lines of Richard Dawkins. Now the importance of paying very close attention to the canonical context of Joshua, that is, paying attention to what has gone before and what will come later, has been argued by a friend of mine, Professor Stephen Nantlice Williams. And he says this, we are meant to read Joshua in its canonical context, the context of the whole Bible. 
where we've already learned divine grief on account of human violence. Already learned the divine accommodation to human ways. Where we shall learn of God's care for lilies and sparrows. Where we shall learn that he will establish, for his own delight, shalom, peace. The upshot is surely this. We must say that if God commanded the slaughter of the Canaanites, it was with an immeasurably heavy heart. And I agree. And Williams wisely cautions that whatever arguments might be put forward to square divine justice, goodness and holiness with the command to slaughter the Canaanites, then, and, and, and that goes in tandem with divine justice, it will provoke dismay unless, and I quote, it incorporates at its heart God's sorrowful accommodation, that God adjusts himself to the particular circumstances. And if that is true, and I think it is true, that means that there is no room for the vengeful God, or the gleefully vengeful God, of Dawkins' imagination. Now when these commands are placed, and these events, are placed along the plot line of the Bible story, to see how they properly relate, not only to the conquest, but their true fulfilment in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I think new ways open to us to understanding them. Now it's obvious that the God that Dawkins doesn't believe in, the God of the Old Testament, is immoral. Commanding that which we lesser mortals would consider ethically deplorable. However, there are two important things to take into account when someone is being accused of acting in an immoral fashion. The first is the matter of their character. Is what is being claimed about this particular person, in this case God, consistent with their known character? Or is it rather that what is known of their character is at odds with the charge being made against them? In which case it at least raises the possibility that what they're being accused of is being misconstrued. It's not quite right. Now, to some degree, whether or not we should obey someone is not solely a matter of whether we think at first sight a command is immoral or moral. Whether we should obey a command is also dependent upon the one who is giving it. Now, this is not simply a matter of someone having authority to issue commands per se. Otherwise, the defence used by the Napsters at Nuremberg trials would have held. I'm just obeying orders. However, in the case of God, and like human authorities, he not only has a right to issue commands, because he's the ultimate authority, he's God, but the commands he gives are underwritten, as it were, by his character, the type of God he is. Now, Scripture portrays God as holy, as just, as good, as true. 
who will bring about his good and perfect will in his world. A clearer understanding of God's character sheds light on the nature of the commandments in such a way that they can be, and I think should be, understood differently. That is, it's reasonable to expect that a good God will issue commandments which are good, even though at first sight they may not appear to be good to us. And so we might want to explore how these commandments, which appear at first sight to be morally questionable, might actually be expressions of God's goodness, as understood in terms of his justice, but also, as we'll see, in terms of his grace. Now, according to the Bible's narrative, the people of Israel had very good reasons to obey God's commands. They had good grounds to trust God. And this trust was based upon his revealed character. They had good warrants to obey his instructions. So with these biblical passages dealing with the conquest, we're not talking about some individuals of the leadership of Israel claiming to have heard inner voices telling them to commit genocide. You know, the sort of stuff of psychotics. And the rest of the people blindly going along with it. Now, you see, the whole Old Testament narrative up to this point gradually and clearly reveals the character of God as he appeared to Abraham, to the patriarchs, and supremely, of course, to Moses. So God is seen as the one who relates to people covenantally with an ultimate desire to bless all nations. <coughs> the one who makes promises and keeps them. He's a faithful God. As someone who uh, reveals himself clearly and personally. Genesis 18. And also that he is the one who um, is righteous. He abhors wickedness. And he responds to it in judgment. Genesis 9, think of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he will not act unjustly. He can't. Will not the judge of the earth do what is right, says Abraham. And furthermore, he's a God who is patient and long-suffering. In the fourth uh, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Genesis fifteen sixteen. Now that is the key verse to hold on to. God shows himself to be the one who shows compassion to his people, the God who acts in history with great miraculous signs and wonders. And you see that in the Exodus. But finally, God reveals his holy character and his commitment to the well-being of his people by means of the covenant, the law, Exodus 20. So the character of Yahweh, the Lord, is displayed throughout the narrative by what he says and what he does. Which means when you take all those different things together, the people of Israel had every good reason to obey his commands. Now, the business of trusting someone enough to do what they require, even when we're sometimes in the dark about what's really going on, 
is a subtle business. We don't always have to have cast-iron guarantees before we exercise faith and obedience. And this uh, point is well illustrated by a parable called The Stranger by Professor Basil Mitchell. And it goes like this. In time of war in an occupied country, a member of the resistance meets one night a stranger who deeply impresses him. The partisan is utterly convinced that the meeting of the stranger's sincerity and constancy and undertakes to trust him. They never meet in conditions of intimacy again. But sometimes the stranger is seen as helping members of the resistance. And the partisan is grateful and says to his friends, he is on our side. But sometimes he's seen in the uniform of the police, handing over patriots to the occupying power. And on these occasions his friends murmur against him. But the partisan still says he's on our side. He still believes that in spite of appearances, the stranger did not deceive him. Sometimes his friends in exasperation say, well, what would he have to do for you to admit that you're wrong, that he's not on our side? But the partisan refuses to answer. He will not consent to put the stranger to the test. And then Mitchell goes on. The partisan in the parable does not allow anything to count decisively against the proposition the stranger is on our side. This is because he's committed to trust in the stranger. But he of course recognises that the stranger's ambiguous behaviour does count against what he believes about him. It's precisely this situation which constitutes the trial of his faith. Now, the relevance of that story for our discussion of the Canaanite genocide is that Yahweh is not a stranger. If the partisan in the parable had, at least in his own mind, sufficient reasons for trusting the stranger despite some ambiguous behaviour, which for others counts against trusting him, How much more, on the basis of God's self-revelation, did the Israelites have good reasons for trusting Yahweh, which led them to obeying all that he commanded at this point in their history? Character counts. The second thing to take into account when uh, someone is being accused of acting in an immoral fashion is whether the commandments to be rid of the Canaanites, can be understood as expressing God's goodness in some way, rather than undermining his goodness. Now, I think the Bible passages suggest that they they can. You see, I think what these commands amount to is ethical cleansing, not ethnic cleansing. Ethical cleansing. First, The actions against the Canaanites are to be understood within the framework of judicial, punitive action. God's punishment. See, God's concern was not simply to have his people located in the land he promised with a forceful eviction of the current inhabitants. 
But they had the inhabitants who were there deserved to be punished for what they were doing. And I'm going to explain what they were doing in a minute. Derek Kidner puts it like this. Their justification was not simply that Canaan was earmarked for Israel, but that its inhabitants were ripe for judgment. Now this is expressed in a number of ways. In Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 5, it's put by way of a disclaimer. God says to the Israelites, it is not because of your righteousness, but because of the wickedness of these nations. Similarly, Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 18. Because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. So it's punitive. Secondly, the action is also to be understood as purgative, purging. Deuteronomy 20.18 likens the situation in Canaan at the time like some moral infection. And it's got to be cleansed, it's got to be eradicated. As it says, that they may not teach you their abominable practices. So it would appear that it's reached saturation point, it couldn't get any worse. Deuteronomy 12 Every abominable thing which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire of their gods. As John Stott comments, it is essential to protect God's people, who were the recipients of his special revelation, though still at a stage of immaturity, from being corrupted by heathen idolatry and immorality. Think about it. If, if things were allowed to continue going on as they were going on, and I'm going to describe some of those things in a minute, then there, was, there would be no way in which Israel could have developed in the way God wanted them to develop. Because, I mean, it was bad enough, as, as we know from the history how they did take on some of the pagan practices, but if they were totally saturated with it, then it would not have been possible for God to have allowed, you know, developed things like the temple, and the priest, and the uh, sacrifice and everything else, and the moral standards. And therefore, you would not have had a nation which would eventually produce the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there wouldn't have been, everything would have been so corrupted, there would not have been those categories whereby people would have understood about sacrificial lambs, for instance and what righteousness looks like. You wouldn't have had a Mary and a Joseph, it would have been righteous people. They too would have been staked in, in, in pagan practices. It was that serious. Now just in case you think this is overkill, literally on the part of God, I want us to think about these detestable practices which led to such acts of judgment. And then think whether the category genocide is the proper category by which to understand God's action. Or would we rather be better looking for some other category to understand what's going on? Now, you're going to need a fairly strong stomach for some of the things I'm going to tell you. But it's important. If we're going to have some sort of moral sense as to why God commanded his people to do what he commanded them to do. Because we're not just dealing with abstract ideas. We're dealing with real people doing real things. 
Now, Professor Clay Jones has shown that the root of the abominable practices is idolatry. And that far from this being some, quote, petty, individualistic, private affair, you know, with little statues in their houses, the pervading idolatry, idolatrous mentality, quote, was theologically conducive to and motivated the formation of Canaanite practices, including the practices of incest, adultery, child sacrifice, homosexuality, and bestiality, such that these practices are not incoherent with Canaanite idolatry. Jones writes, Idolatry perverts our ability to love what Yahweh loves. Consequently, we love what he hates, and we hate what he loves. The story of Canaanite incest, adultery, child sacrifice, homosexuality, and bestiality flow out of the plotline of idolatry. The tragedy of this story is that not only is idolatry an offence to Yahweh, but it fails to supply a happy ending for human communities as well. In other words, it was not good for the Canaanite people to keep on doing what they're doing. And Jones points out that as well as divination, witchcraft, and female and male temple sex, Canaanite idolatry involved a wide range of morally repulsive practices which mimic the sexual perverse conduct of the Canaanite fertility gods, such as idolatry, homosexuality, transvestitism, pederastry, that is, men having sex with young boys, and sex with animals and incest. Now, one of the worst practices was that of child sacrifice. Here is Jones' description of what went on. Molech was a Canaanite underworld deity represented as an upright, bull-headed idol with human body, in whose belly a fire was stoked, and in whose outstretched arms a child was placed that would be burned to death. And it was not just infants. Children as old as four were sacrificed. Age of one of my grandchildren. Such that, hands above a bronze cauldron, which would burn the child. As the flame burned the child, surrounded the body, the limbs would shrivel up, and the mouth would appear to grin as if laughing, until it was so shrunk enough to slip into the cauldron. Now, archaeological evidence indicates that children were burned to death this way in their thousands. And given that the population of Canaan was quite small, that is a significant number. What Jones relates as acts by the Canaanites were not occasional sort of peccadilloes carried out by a select few. These practices characterise the whole of society from top to bottom. And therefore, it is difficult to envisage that anything less than a root and branch removal would have been sufficient to deal with those kinds of evils. They're not open to persuasion, these guys. Now, can we imagine any Western nation today 
I'd be standing by while I say that mass murder of children goes on in that kind of way in, a, in, in different parts of the world. There'd be uproar, wouldn't there? I mean, I'm sure Trump would send in the Marines or Newcomb or something. Well, why should we then complain that God, the moral ruler of the universe, didn't stand idly by when such practices were going on in Canaan during the time of Joshua, but instead acted in judgment, using his people as his judicial instrument? Now, Jones poses some interesting questions which we need to face as we claim moral outrage about what, what uh, the Israelites did. He says, do we generally comprehend the depth of Canaanite sins? Do we understand the significance of God having all but destroyed Israel for committing Canaanite sins? Could it be that because our culture today commits these same Canaanite sins, we are inoculated against the seriousness of these sins and so think God's judgment is unfair? How might a theology of the human heart and its sinful condition illuminate a motivation for divine genocide claims. In short, most of our problems regarding God's ordering the destruction of the Canaanites comes from the fact that God hates sin, and we do not. Now sometimes, Bible critics give the impression that when it comes to God, it's a heads we win, tails he loses kind of situation. So if God does not act towards evil in the world, well, we accuse him of being indifferent or amoral or that he doesn't exist. But when he claims he does act, as in the case of the Canaanites, we think his action is too hard and we accuse him of mass murder. God can't win. But there is a third reason for this action by God through his people, namely, that it was preparatory. It was preparing the way for a nation from which the saviour of the world would come. Uh, one scholar, uh, Daniel Gard, puts it this way. He says, Yahweh's war was necessary because of the hardness of the heart of the enemy. For the protection of Israel, for the eradication of idolatry, and for the education of Israel and other nations. More than this, it was for the preparation of the nation of Israel to bring forth the one who would come as a saviour, not only for Israel, but for the whole children of Adam. As I said, it's inconceivable that such conditions could have been achieved without the eradication of those Canaanite practices as Israel's history was sadly to show. Now this understanding, I think, establishes several important points which help us to view the Canaanite conquest from a biblical perspective rather than from our Western 21st century perspective. First, this is not nationalistic expansion of the kind Hitler engaged in. So Dawkins' parallel collapses there. Second, the timing is significant. Israel was made to wait 400 years until it would be right to invade. For until then, the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. Genesis 15, 16. 
Now, this display of God's patience in waiting 400 years also puts paid to the claim that God is a, quote, capriciously malevolent bully. Do you know any bully who would be that patient? Third, the, frame, the fundamental framework with which we're to understand these commands is that of covenant obedience and worship. Therefore, in addition to his judicial wrath, we should also expect to see some of the other divine characteristics of God, such as long-suffering and mercy, which are mentioned in Exodus 34, to be found. And actually, we do. First of all, God's holiness, as well as his patience and mercy, are part of the goods which are revealed in these events and these commands. In particular, in this particular instance, the good which God desires is that the land which is to be occupied is removed of repulsive and destructive practices. And in their place there's to be righteousness with a view to Israel being a light to the nations as taken up by Isaiah. In short, the good is purity. So the issue is holiness, not hostility. That's what God wants. That's a good thing. Restraints in the warfare of Israel, post the conquest, was to engage in the kind of conquest, sorry, let me start again. The kind of warfare Israel was to engage in after the conquest both implicitly and explicitly, makes room for enemies not to be destroyed in that way they used to. There's not to be a scorched earth policy according to Deuteronomy chapter 20. In fact, when a city is under siege, the first thing they're to do, this is post-conquest, if they're you know, being invaded or attacking somewhere else, uh, is that they offer peace terms. And that compares favourably with the brutal terms of, for instance, the Ammonites, as we see in 1 Samuel 11.2. This is what Nahash says. Nahash the Ammonite said, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace to all Israel. The Israelites weren't allowed to do that kind of thing. There's also the striking example of Rahab and the sparing of her and the family. They were welcomed into the ranks of Israel. And it's from Rahab that our Lord Jesus Christ is descendant. I mean, there's grace if ever there was one. So this is not only illustrative of God's mercy, but acts as a counter to those who would claim that in the Canaanite conquest we have an instance of ethnic cleansing. If it was ethnic cleansing, everyone would have been wiped out, including Rahab. In fact, Dr. Peter Williams suggests that it would be fair to deduce from this incident that had all the other Canaanites turned to Yahweh, they would have been spared. Why not? But it's also worth pointing out what is considered to be merciful is to some degree culturally relative. See, we've got to bear in mind the cultural norms of the day when engaging in warfare. 
and not compare it to sort of 21st century practices which hinge on the Geneva Convention, although many nations today don't even bother with that. You see, when we set these practices alongside other nations, Israel shows remarkable constraint. So, a quick putting of the sword to death by people by the sword stands in stark contrast to this description of the practice of the later Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal II. Ashurbanipal's usual procedure after the capture of a hostile city was to burn it, then to mutilate all the male prisoners by cutting off their hands and ears and putting out their eyes, after which they were to be put on a great heap to perish from torture from the sun, flies, their wounds and suffocation. The children, boys and girls, were all burnt alive at the stake, and the chief was carried off to Assyria to be flayed alive for the king's delectation. Israel wasn't allowed to do that. So perhaps the reputation of Israel in 1 Kings 20 was justified where we read, his officials said to him, look, we've heard that the kings of Israel are merciful. Let us go to the king of Israel with sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads. Perhaps he will spare your life. So that provides us, if you like, with a sort of cultural perspective as to what is going on by those actions decreed by God. Well, I now want to touch upon the delicate matter of the killing of Canaanite children. Now, there's no simple answer to what appears to be morally questionable, but that doesn't mean that nothing can be said which sheds some kind of light on our understanding. Now, the first thing we need to get in our minds is the corporate and collective nature of sin, which brings judgment, divine judgment, in its wake. Now, in modern times, the Spanish Civil War was the first total war, with civilians finding themselves on the front line, including children. As Professor D.A. Carson writes, the consequences of human sin infest many of our experiences with some measure of pain. Such afflictions may be splashed onto the canvas of human history with a very broad brush. Thus God says to Jerusalem, I am against you. I will draw my sword from its scabbard and cut off from you both the righteous and the wicked. Ezekiel 21. In one sense, of course, no one is righteous. But that is not what the prophet means here. He means that when devastation descends on Jerusalem, the people who will suffer will include those whose immediate sins have brought the city to this horrible punishment and those who have not participated in the sins that have brought about the destruction of the nation. War, plague, congenital birth defects and many other afflictions are like that. They're not very discriminating. Therefore, if we see them only as retaliation or retribution for specific sins, we shall be terribly confused when people who have not indulged in such sins suffer along with those who have. But if instead we see such suffering as in the first place the effluence of the fall, the result of a fallen world, 
the consequences of evil that is really evil and in which we ourselves all too frequently, frequently indulge, then however much we may grieve when we suffer, we will not be taken by surprise. Now did you notice that in that prophecy of Ezekiel, it is Yahweh who depicts himself as a warrior. He is the one who is going to inflict judgment upon his nation because of the way they behaved. And that includes children using another nation, Babylon. So the parallel with the conquest is quite striking. With the Canaanites, God uses Israel to punish them. With the Jews, he uses the Babylonians. When you see film footage of the utter devastation wrought upon German cities like Berlin and Dresden during the Second World War, and without in, for a moment engaging any kind of moral superiority, it's difficult not to entertain the thought that whilst it was the Allied bombers that were the immediate cause of such carnage, at a deeper level it was the Nazi leadership and those adults who had supported them who were ultimately to blame. If so, then, could it legitimately be said that they brought the destruction down upon their own heads and that of their children? Now, although these words may grate on our modern sensibilities as we hear them from a distance over 70 years, the chilling speech of Air Marshal Sir Arthur Bomber Harris conveys the stark reality of the boomerang effects of rampant evil. He said the Nazis entered this war under the rather childish delusion that they were going to bomb everyone else, and nobody was going to bomb them. At Rotterdam, London, Warsaw, and half a dozen other places. They put their rather naive theory into operation. They sowed the wind. Now they're going to reap the whirlwind. Now similarly, given the evidence provided by Clay Jones concerning the sickening evils perpetrated by Canaanite society, anyone who takes the biblical portrayal of God's holiness seriously should not at all be surprised that the wages of sin, which is death, was experienced by a whole nation. Another consideration is the weighing of potential greater evils and hidden greater goods. Potential greater evils and hidden greater goods. Let me explain. Now for many of us living in the West, death is seen as that which is to be avoided at all costs. We find it very difficult to envisage anything worse than death, so we don't talk about it. And this is especially so, of course, when it comes to our children. Now, as a father, I, I would not even give it a moment's thought if I were to be asked to sacrifice my life for my children or my grandchildren. I'd do it in a heartbeat, as, as I'm sure you would. But just supposing I were able to look into the future, and that future was one in which my children were to grow up to do evil things, then an early death if that's the only option, may not seem so terrible after all. Here, a lesser evil, a premature death, 
is to be preferred over a greater evil, a life of wickedness, in which other people also suffer. And if that is linked with the belief, as one scholar, William Lane Craig, argues, that babies and infants go to be with God after death, then our perspective has changed again. Now, Lane argues that the death of Canaanite children is also their salvation, in that they were saved from a life of appalling corruption and misery, and they were saved to be with God. Now, this possibility is also proposed by another scholar called Paul Coulter, but he adds a cautionary note. If we ask whether it would be better for God to allow children to grow up in such a perverted culture and religious system, or to bring their young lives to an end and gather them to himself, we begin to see that what happened to them may not have been the worst option. Even as we consider this, however, we're on dangerous ground. Only God can make that kind of judgment, since he alone possesses all knowledge and wisdom. Our finite minds are incapable of understanding every dimension of such a dilemma. Like Paul, we must acknowledge that God's judgments are unsearchable and his paths beyond tracing out. A humble submission to God's wisdom at this point seems the most appropriate response given the paucity of the biblical data on the issue. And I think he's got the balance right. Okay, just briefly now, I want to think now about the relationship between what we've been looking at in the Old Testament and what is fulfilled in Jesus in the New. Now there is, as you'll understand, both a continuity and discontinuity between the Testaments. But it's not a discontinuity of the revelation of God in his ways. So that you have the God of wrath being replaced by the nice sweet God of sweetness and light in Jesus. It's rather some of the outworkings of God's revelation in terms of his holy love, which are culturally specific, for instance, judgment against the Canaanites, and at the same time fulfilling his covenantal obligations to his people to occupy the land, becomes transposed and, and, and changed and universalized in the New Testament through Jesus. Let me explain this. One scholar puts it like this, trample along them. He says, <clears throat> the God of the Old Testament is not a different God from the God we encounter in the New Testament. Nor did God change his mind. The war against the Canaanites was simply an early phase of the battle that comes to its climax on the cross and its completion at the final judgment. The object of warfare moves from the Canaanites, who are the object of God's wrath of their sin, to the spiritual powers and principalities, and then finally on to the utter destruction of all evil, human and spiritual. Indeed, it must be said that those who have moral difficulties with the genocide and the conquest of Canaan should have even more serious difficulties with the final judgment. In the latter, all those who do not follow Christ will be thrown into the lake of fire. The alternatives to embracing this picture are either 
rejecting the biblical God or playing the game of just choosing those scriptures which suit us. Or perhaps treating the final judgment as a kind of picture, a metaphor for total annihilation. However, even the latter is not a pleasant thought and still raises issues about how a loving God can exercise any kind of penalty towards the wicked. Now I said that right at the beginning that we are to read these texts in a literal typological way. That is, we've seen, we've understood them literally, this is what God said and why he said it and what they were meant to do. But at a deeper level, they're, they're a picture pointing us to Jesus. So let me suggest to you how to understand it. That on the cross, as the suffering servant, Jesus did the work of defeating evil and liberating his people from sin, which parallels the way God worked in the liberation of the land and the destruction of the Canaanites. So the conquest which Israel only partially and temporarily, temporarily achieved is, as it were, repeated and deepened by Jesus, the true Israel. But furthermore, we see Jesus as a sin-bearing substitute. In, in, in a way, is a kind of embodiment of the Canaanites in the rebellion and degeneracy as he dies on the cross. Remember the Apostle Paul says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And it's that phrase which lies, I think, behind Martin Luther's shocking statement that on the cross Jesus became the greatest liar, perjurer, thief, adulterer and murderer that mankind has ever known. Not because he committed those sins, because, but because he was actually made sin for us. So in the same way, couldn't we reverently say that Jesus became the greatest Canaanite that mankind has ever known? The wrath of God which fell upon the Canaanites through the instrument of Israel falls upon all such Canaanites on the cross. And think of the Canaanite in your own heart. So Jesus, as he became the true Israel, he became the true Canaan too. As he suffered the holy anger against all acts of unrighteousness, even those of such a vile nature as those perpetrated by the Canaanites, and all those who have followed in their footsteps ever since. So just in summary then, as God's wrath and mercy was shown in the conquest, think again of Rahab, albeit in a broken form, in a broken world, they are perfectly displayed and transcended in the greater conquest which took place on Calvary's hill and which will be fully finalised and consummated when Jesus comes back again to save his people and to bring the world in judgment. You've been very patient in listening. <laughs> okay, thank you.
Phil said we've got time for questions, and I'm sure you've got many. And if there are really deep questions, I'll just refer you to the book. <coughs> maybe in there somewhere. Um, okay. So you first. And so there's no such thing as a stupid question, except when I ask it. Um, well, in, in one sense, as Christians, we should be engaging in ethical cleansing all the time with ourselves. You see, because I think one of the things I didn't have time to mention here is that that picture of, uh, if you like, holy warfare that you see in, uh, with the conquest of Canaan to get rid of all those bad things, Jesus uses similar language, doesn't he? When he talks about cutting off your arm, plucking out, gouging out your eye, that's warfare language. That's what as we saw Ashurbanipal and those guys did, literally. But Jesus said, no, spiritually, God is a holy God, and he wants the best for us, and the best way we flourish is in a holy way. So we've got to engage in a holy war, if you like, on our own, in, in, in ourselves, first of all. So there's going to be an, we've got to engage, with the help of the Holy Spirit, in the ethical cleansing of ourselves. And similarly, a church should be doing that too, with concern with purity and holiness. So in that spiritual sense, I think it applies, but but, but not in terms, but certainly not in terms of. Um, there's no there's there is no um, there is no basis for another kind of um, if you like holy war which took place then that was unique and it was a once and for all. It's never repeated again in scripture in that way. It's not equivalent therefore to the jihad which uh, the, the Muslims would engage in. So I'd say, short answer, no. That's a good question. Would you say that all of the judgments of God um, then would um, be remedial in the long term, at least, for those being judged? Uh, not, well, they're not a bit remedial in the sense that uh, not everybody who responds to them um, in a positive way for them to be remedial. Um, uh, some judgments are, are, are punitive, where God gives us up. I mean, Romans 1.18 and following. Uh, the giving up is, is God's judicial act of judgment upon, a na- uh, upon people that turned away from him. Uh, and the, the, the judgment there um, is, is in the, the degeneration that actually takes place, for instance, in the society. So um, I think with, with Christians, with, I think it is, it's meant to be um, purgative, remedial. Um, but there are cases where it is punitive, and it will be punitive, on the last day of judgment. And that, that, that is it, you know, that's the final one. Man is destined to die once and then to face the judgment. Yeah. It's a kind of two-part question. Firstly, um, we wouldn't normally have an hour to give somebody an answer if they can't this kind of question in a conversation with us. Yeah. Do you have any tips on kind of a quick answer to this? But also, do you, do you have any uh, insight into what might be sort of the contemporary idol that lies behind someone's dismissal of God by using this kind of violent attack. So, so let's take it in two parts. I've got a little brain, I have to take it slowly. 
So the first one was, uh, can you give a short answer? We haven't got an hour, which I've had to do it. Um, it depends what I think I, I'd want to come in and, you know, what is the particular issue that we're facing? You know, is it, is it trying to understand that just purely, well, this seems to me an immoral thing, it does seem to be, to be genocide. Um, but, but then I think one's got to take a step back and say, well, it's, you can't just, it's like anything else um, that you're looking at. Everything appears in a context, and the context actually shapes what is your understanding of what's going on. And so I, I want to say, well, look, let's start with basics, and I'd want to start with the character of God. If this is, what go, if this is who God is, then it follows it can't, it cannot be genocide because God by definition cannot be genocide. So there must be some other way of understanding it. And one way of understanding it is in terms of um, dealing with it's radical surgery if you put it like that. That would be, be the short way. And the second one question was Particular idol Um, I'm not sure. I think I guess it would vary. Um, I don't think there's any particular reason why would um, uh, people, well, the new atheists, uh, do it? Because it, I mean, in a, in a sense, it seems that they here's, uh, here they can occupy uh, moral high ground. Um, and also, of course, what the, the, the tendency to do is to link that, let's say, uh, what happened. Um, with conquest, with saying what happened with the uh, jihad today, for instance, or the link to the Crusades and that kind of thing. But what was, um, but if you put it all together, that's not quite fair, actually, because they're not, you've got to look at the differences. Um, so I think it's part of it from an apologetic point of view, from an atheist point of view, it, it, it sounds a good one. You know, oh, this is the God you worship, you say God's love, well, look at all this there. And, and then we get all defensive and we cringe and we don't know what to say. Um, so, but the other thing I think with the new atheists are to say, well, I mean, which God are you getting angry with? Because if this God didn't exist, you know, who gave commands? You know, I mean, so they have to explain it in, in political terms, which is what um, uh, Dawkins and Hitchens and people like that do. <coughs> yeah. um, I, I like what you're saying. I understand what you're saying, that it was a Kenites were absolutely corrupt. I have a slight problem with ethical cleansing. There being one big ethical cleansing before mm. in the days of Noah. Yes indeed. And didn't God say that that wasn't going to happen again? Well I don't think he said that one wasn't going to happen again, it was going to happen in that way again. That's my understanding, yeah. in terms of the flood. Uh, because it will happen again. I mean, 2 Peter takes out sort of imagery of the earth being dissolved and by fire. Um, but yeah, so, so there you are. You see, it's not simply, you know, if, if people are going to get upset about the conquest thing, well, you've also got to go about the flood. Because we say, you know, I mean, what about drowning children? That's a terrible thing. But that happened. Mm -hmm. So, um, there. So, it's the same sort of 
we've got to have the same categories of understanding what is God doing here. And there it was, judgment, but also a, a cleansing, because things were so unbelievably bad. He had to start from scratch, as it were, with a remnant. But, of course, even there, corrupt, as Israel was corrupt, there's only one who's not corrupt, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the remnant, who then becomes a substitute and for our sin. Uh, lady at the back. Thank you for your explanations. It's a difficult question to answer. Um, it's got to give you a good insight. Um, I have a question about timing. Mm. Um, because I think whenever people ask this question, it's, um, they always doubt whether or not God exists and the power of God. And one could also possibly argue that if Jesus Christ came before what happened to the Canaanites, then whatever that happened, does not need to happen. And if given that God is so all-powerful and all these wonderful things, why can he not make Jesus Christ come before? And I kind of <coughs> Right. Uh, two, two ways to answer that, I guess, is, is one, God is God. Uh, he knows all the permutations and um, uh, the right timing. His timing is perfect. And when you look at the coming of Jesus, there, there had to be a, a fair amount of time um, for the for the people to be educated to receive him. I mean, this is Paul's argument in Galatians, in a sense, because it's all about children who needed educating to come to some understanding. So that's why you needed time to have categories, for instance, like priesthood and sacrifice. Otherwise, Jesus dying on the cross wouldn't make any sense at all. You've got to understand the cross in relation to the Old Testament sacrifices. Uh, the question of prophets, the one who brings God's word. So that means you've got to have time for prophets to come. And then Jesus being the ultimate prophet. The idea of kingship, how do you understand kingship? Well, God had to establish that, and with David especially. And that takes time before you get to the Jesus. Um, and a whole host of other things. Um, and it's argued, you know, certainly the timing of, of Jesus coming when he did, which you know, seems weird, but so that's 3 BC. Yeah. Um, was perfect in so many ways because um, for the spread of the gospel. Because you had... Um, a stable um, a stable world in the Roman Empire the, um, the, the, the peace that the, um, the Pax Romana that the, the Romans established uh, they had a great transport system roads, they built loads of roads and that meant because people would use the roads and take the gospel with them um, so there are lots of good reasons in a sense, practical, pragmatic reasons why Jesus came the way when he did and also to understand that uh, Jesus' death, of course, uh, deals with sins before he came, as well as after he came, for those who put their trust in, in God. <coughs> okay. Well, then, I think we're going to uh, uh, stop there. Yes, fine. Can we say a huge thank you to you? Well, thank you. Um, uh, just helping us to think, uh, being absolutely biblical, being where we are theologically, and... Uh, uh, and just showing that actually there are answers and we can think these things through. Indeed, and, uh, yeah. You've done a great service for us tonight. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.